0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Well, tonight I'm going to give you the good news. (laughs) Mm, 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 mm. This is not a path that is supposed to be cultivating more suffering. This is a path that is cultivating happiness. Real happiness. And I'll read a couple of things from the Buddha. From the Dhammapada. Live in joy. In love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment know the sweet joy of the way. Good news. Sometimes in our earnestness and sincerity of practice, uh, we can forget that this is a path of happiness, of joy. The Buddha was called the happy one. A nice moniker, you know. The Dalai Lama starts out his book, The Art of Happiness, with the line, the purpose of life is to be happy. The purpose of life is to be happy. It's a great way to start a book. What can that mean? The purpose, our purpose of life is to be happy. Um, Sometimes, they said, in our earnestness and also in the um, ways that the teachings can be interpreted, um, we forget this and focus on suffering the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path leading to the end of suffering. But that's all in the support of knowing the highest happiness. And I want to remind us all tonight not only that that's what we're doing, but to um, actively uh, hold the practice in that context. When I first got into all of this, many years ago, I came out of a lot of suffering. And I was very motivated to uh, get out of that suffering, as many people come to practice with that reason. But at the same time, I have had a... um, And have a passionate side of me, a side that also could love life and see the beauty in life, see the goodness in life. Actually the 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 first key landmark or juncture when I said okay I'm going for it was that the first summer in uh, uh, in Boulder, Colorado. This is in 1974, the first summer at Naropa Institute. And I had, was uh, sitting in on uh, Joseph Goldstein's class, Essential Buddhism, and uh, I was really getting more and more into it. Uh, and one day I came into the uh, the class wearing my uh, New York Knicks t-shirt. And I was a seasoned ticket holder to the New York Knicks. Uh, some of my most intense, exhilarating moments in my life were in Madison Square Garden <clears throat> up to that point. <clears throat> Maybe even still I can include them, <laughs> uh, if I'm really honest. But I, I, I was having this meditation, and I was really getting into the meditation, and, and then the thought Occurred to me that I was wearing my Knicks shirt. I'm, I'm not a big Knicks fan, by the way, now, just in case. for, But those were the days of um, you know, Walt Frazier and Willis Reed and for the basketball fans. Earl the Pearl was my favorite player, Earl of Pearl Monroe. Great spit move. And, uh, and I, um, I had this horrible thought. That I, it was the first time I went up to Joseph, who I was kind of like, Putting on this pedestal of "Wow, he is the Buddha." By that time, fourth week into the class, but I was so disturbed that I um, that I had the uh, finally the nerve to go up and speak to him and said, um, uh, "Excuse me, I, I have a question. It's uh, it, it's to me a serious question. Um, might not be to you, but um, I'm a season ticket holder." to the Knicks. <laughs> will I, if I really go for this, will I go to Madison Square Garden and be watching the game saying, nice shot, Frazier. Good move, Havlicek. Good pass, for sure. Yeah. Because I wasn't ready to sign up for it if that's where it was <laughs> leading to. <you> know. <clears throat> and he gave the perfect answer as he often did and does. He said, well, you'll still, you'll still have your uh, passion for the game. You'll probably just get over a loss sooner. I said, okay, I'm in. <clears throat> and I then dove in and really put my heart into it because I was motivated by a lot of suffering. And if that's the case in you, if you have a lot of suffering in your life or inside in your heart, you know, don't think, oh, there's no hope for me, I'm so far gone. Actually, you can be more motivated than many people. So, you might have exactly the ingredients that you need to really um, dive in and get the fruits of practice. And over the course of the next, oh, 10 years or so, my life was mainly about practice it still is but it was more like I had I was trying to keep it together in the outside world but I was I was just so compelled to to explore and, and dive in and see as much as I could um, and I had what is what one would call a long honeymoon period I was just in love with the Dharma you know, and Like I said here last time, you know, I just wanted to tell everybody you just have to be mindful, you know, and didn't want to scare people away. But uh, I was just so grateful and still am so grateful that there is a practice and a way to see clearly and open the heart. But at some point... Um, I became very serious about practice, dead serious about practice, with the emphasis on dead <laughs> and i um, I lost my joy and somehow uh, went into a a period where it didn 't feel quite okay to have my passion for life and enjoy life, and kind of misunderstood some teachings that um, that impacted me not on a conceptual level but on a deeper internal level. There was a dissonance there that somehow it wasn 't okay to really um, delight in sports and song and being playful and and loving life. And um, it was a period for that lasted for a while. Um, went to one very profound retreat where each each evening the, uh, the the master, the Burmese master, ended his nightly talk with the expression May you, and the phrase, may you speedily escape from the woes of this world and realize uh, the bliss of nirvana. And that, those kinds of teachings, I somehow distorted the end of suffering with the end of living um, in a subtle way in my mind. And I, I am not alone in this. Um, and in fact, there are some teachings that could easily be confused. I'll share with you a couple um, that uh, could easily be distorted to have this, this view. One is uh, the teaching on uh, what's called samvega. And samvega is, this is a very important quality of heart and mind. Samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A, if you haven't heard it before. This is uh, one definition by uh, Tanasaro Bhikkhu. Samvega, the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly, and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. you hear that it doesn't sound like it's a lot of fun you know? <laughs> but this is a very important um, understanding and perspective the The key words in that definition the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. But we can miss that and just say, life is meaningless. What's the point? You get born, it's a world of suffering, you live for a while, then you die. So, where is the richness of life in that? The... Uh, Alternative to Samvega, or what balances it out, is uh, a quality called Pasada. Clear and serene confidence, sometimes it's defined as what keeps Samvega from turning into despair. Clear sense of the predicament and the way out of it, leading to something beyond aging, illness, death, at the same time, feeling confident that the way can work, but you can see, you can see how that can get uh, distorted into a oh, life is meaningless. Let's get out of here. Another, um, another teaching, a very profound teaching that I somehow misunderstood, is um, the the teaching. Uh, on the quality called Nibida, Nibbida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, Nibbida, which is um, sometimes translated as um, utter disgust, one of, the, one of the phrases in one of the translations, one should have utter disgust for the aggregates. And the aggregates is another way of saying this mind and body process one should have utter disgust for this body and mind and the ones around us. <laughs> or another translation, revulsion. One should have revulsion for this, for the aggregates. And that is, those are two translations of the word nibbida that don't quite uh, nail it that don't quite accurately communicate what Nibbida is about because... And uh, Andy Olinsky from uh, the Barry uh, Center for Buddhist Studies has a really uh, lovely article on on this, on Nibbida, and how it can be distorted and confused. Um, Really the word Nibbida is uh, translated more accurately as disenchantment. One should have disenchantment with regard to the aggregates. What does that mean? One is not under the enchantment of the form, this body and this mind. Or one could say, the spell is broken. That's a very different understanding than having utter disgust or revulsion, isn't it? And so you have to kind of see, not taking everything so literally f- from your limited perspective and saying, what is going on here? God, I'm just doing all I can to be able to look in the mirror and, and not wince, you know. <laughs> and they're telling me to have utter disgust and revulsion for it. No, just not be enchanted by this form or that form. And again, I wasn't... I saw that i wasn 't alone in this when I um, reclaimed my joy and realized that this practice is about just being authentically who you are, and that well-being and happiness is a central part of the of the practice. Um, I started to be interested to see where I had misunderstood and what the Buddha actually said about happiness, and uh, one uh, one passage that really uh, was comforting to me reading uh, Ajahn Sumedho's words on how this is not something that was unique to me. Ajahn Sumedho, the wonderful. Uh, uh, Western monastic. I think uh, Sally had, had talked about him. Very um, high high guy and wise, wise being. This is what he says. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That is a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, the selfless nature of reality but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight, in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them, we find joy. <clears throat> this is a good thing, it's a very good thing to let wholesomeness and beauty and goodness and truth delight us. It's, it's what makes it a rich experience. It's what inspires us. We are inspired by goodness. We're inspired by by truth. And it touches us in a place that, that wants to shine that goodness and that truth from us, from within. So I took a look at the teachings, as I said, and wanted to see just what teachings um, could help me understand how joy and, uh, and well-being and happiness are cultivated? Uh, one one other thing I, I occurs for me to read to you. This is from um, Analayo Satipatthana, Direct Path to Realization. The really most clear comprehensive treatise on the the Satipatthana Sutta. And he talks about joy. He says, one can say that the entire scheme of the gradual training can be envisaged as a progressive refinement of joy. the whole of the path, a progressive refinement of joy to go for higher and higher states of happiness. And uh, he makes the point that one of the real um, gifts of the Buddha as after being an ascetic for the six years and going through self mortification and saying uh, no to any pleasure, realized that that was that was just a denial of the goodness in life. And when he said, Oh, it is good to let yourself feel the wholesomeness, the goodness of things. That was the big turning point. And as you I'm sure remember the story, that was when his His cohorts left him behind and said, "Hey, he's gone soft. We're we're not going, we're not hanging out with him anymore." But he said, "No, it's it's okay and it's good to let myself experience delight and pleasure." As he remembered going into high absorption states that he went to went into when he was uh, a young boy, and he said, "Ah, this is a pleasure. I'll let myself feel." And then seeing not only the pleasure or the, the goodness, the feeling of well-being from high absorption states, but all the wholesome states, even those that are not about high absorption, that there are wholesome states that are important to cultivate, and that they create the ground, the foundation out of which liberation can occur. So for me, when I, when I looked at uh, the various teachings, uh, there have been three that have really struck me that have formed the basis of this course that uh, I teach that uh, Guy mentioned the first night, Awakening Joy, um, which is just a really, really a, um, uh, a, a repackaging of the teachings based on these three particular um, teachings about different wholesome states. First teaching is a teaching on wise effort, wise effort, right effort, which technically includes four aspects, guarding against unwholesome states, overcoming unwholesome states when they arise, Cultivating wholesome states and maintaining and increasing wholesome states when they arise. Those are the four right efforts. And we spend a lot of time on talking about, you know, guarding against the unwholesome and how to work with it. Uh, And of course, we talk about cultivating wholesome states, you know, like loving kindness or mindfulness. But sometimes uh, that fourth one of maintaining and increasing a wholesome state when it arises uh, can be lost in in the shuffle. Now, unwholesome states, akusala, are states of suffering that also lead to more suffering. I'm sure you know a few. Greed, hatred, delusion, jealousy, envy, Lust, anger, fear, confusion, all of those. You know those, right? Mm -hmm. And these are states of contraction. The mind gets tight, the body gets tight, the heart gets tight, and they are states of suffering. Then there are all the wholesome states. Mm -hmm non-greed, generosity, non-hatred, kindness, non-delusion, clarity, love, compassion, equanimity, patience, generosity, many, many wholesome states. And he says, this is a good thing to cultivate these states. And when they're here to maintain and increase them, Now, here's the tricky part, because one can say, oh, cool, here's a wholesome state. How do I keep it here? How do I make it larger? Come on, bring it on. You know, there you are. Gosh, this is so peaceful. This is so calm. Oh, please don't go away. (laughs) You've just gotten into an unwholesome state. Oh, come on. It's so good. A little bit more. Let's go. You've just gotten into an unwholesome state. Because any kind of grasping at a wholesome state, and you've just fallen into an, an unwholesome state of wanting. So it's tricky. Right. So, this is the first piece of cultivating wholesome states and maintaining and increasing them when they're here. We'll talk a little bit more about how to do that in a moment. In fact, that's what the uh, really the heart of the talk is. So a second principle that really struck me has to do with these wholesome states, that they have within them a feeling of real gladness and well-being. Think of of something that... um, that brings you joy. Say, an activity, or maybe in the last few days, any moment of real well-being. And uh, remember being in the middle of that experience. You might even have an image in your mind the last time you connected with something really good and wholesome inside. notice how it feels right now. Okay, you can open your eyes. Mm, How does it feel? Just can take a couple of comments. What does it feel like inside there? What is it? Sweet. Sweet. That's one word. Lots, I'm not looking for the right answer. Just any ways you can describe it. What is it? Delicious. Delicious. Okay. What else? Any other? Restful. Restful hmm say again open. open yeah anything else clear. clear yeah so all of these these this wholesome state which has an expansiveness to it there is a feeling of uplift of gladness connected with it sometimes the word pamoja gladness or delight is is used and the Buddha says tune into that gladness. In one discourse, uh, it's Majima 99, he gives the example, being in the middle of an act of generosity is one example. Mm -hmm. And he says, if you're in the middle of an act of generosity, think to yourself, Oh, I'm being generous right now. He says, this is a good thing to think, to reflect, Oh, I'm being generous right now. And notice how it feels. He's not saying, Hey, I hope everybody sees how generous I am. Check it out. This is I'm a pretty generous guy. That's not it. That you've just gotten identified with that feeling that's come through you. But if you really just feel how good it feels for generosity to move through you. You feel that uplift, that openness, that clear, that lightness and all. And he says, that gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. Just that feeling of gladness. You know, you can be kind of bummed out and going through a, you know, kind of a cranky day and all of a sudden something touches you and the whole thing cracks in a moment. Ah! An equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. In a moment, the heart opens and feels alive and open. Um, And he says, that gladness, another aspect, another part of the, the, the sutta, he says, it gladdens the heart one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the truth, inspiration in in the Dhamma. So, the key is to not miss that gladness, but to actually be present and let yourself be touched by it. And neuroscience has um, corroborated this in recent years. The, all the the whole field of neuroscience and positive psychology and uh, stuff like that they have confirmed what the Buddha was talking about because in the neuroscience um, way of seeing things when you um, are tuned in to the feeling of well-being you are um, deepening the grooves in your in your brain the neural pathways that start to bring about um, uh, a lessening of fear, a lessening of vigilance, a lessening of contraction. We have these uh, almond-shaped cluster of neurons in our brain called uh, the amygdala. Probably many of you are familiar with it. And the amygdala looks out and scans for what can go wrong. You know? And it's a good thing that we have it because it keeps us Protected up to a point and uh, warns against danger, but we are wired up to scan the horizon for what can go wrong. As uh, Rick Hansen, uh a good friend who teaches here a lot at, neuro, uh, in, at Spirit Rock and a neuroscience expert, he wrote a book called Buddha's Brain. As he says, the brain, our brain, is like Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences. Because you have one negative experience and it really impacts you. You know, you might have a thousand encounters with friendly dogs and one dog bites you and you're going to be vigilant for that because it it got in there. So we have to train ourselves to not have the amygdala run us. And particularly when we're under stress, it gets activated that much more. So we have a tendency towards seeing what can go wrong, many of us. And we need to train ourselves to see what's right. There's a study I came across that said, um, for most people when they have a negative experience, it takes seven positive experiences to balance it out, you know, somebody snaps at you or says something, you know, jarring, and you might be kind of a little on edge throughout the day. It, may, it might take seven people saying hi, how are you doing? Oh, nice to see you. To kind of, kind of, okay, chill out. <clears throat> and Rick also here's a little, a little uh, formula that Rick gives. He says. Mm, If you, when you're in a moment of well-being, if you take time to really let it in, 30 seconds to rest in a moment of well-being, and you do that six times in a day, three minutes, I know that's a lot, (laughs) you do that six times in a day, over the course of two weeks in your daily life, you'll notice a, a, a significant shift in your general level of well-being, both because you're, you're deepening the neural pathways, but also because you're starting to be on the lookout for what's good. Here we have lots of opportunities. What else are you going to do? Uh, so just think of all the moments that you can take this on as practice instead of just noticing what's wrong to not miss the moments of well-being that are here throughout the day so many times. The thing is, once you start looking for them, you find them. Because we have what's called a confirmation bias. We will see what we look for. This is the third principle of the third teaching principle that that struck me uh, in one of the discourses the Buddha said um, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon that will become the inclination of their mind can you argue with that that's what practice is all about and we come here having practiced looking for what can go wrong or how we don't measure up or somehow uh, how can I get rid of this part of me that I that I don't like if you look for how things will go wrong and that everybody around will disappoint you in your daily life if, if that's what you your basic belief is you are priming the brain, as Dan Siegel says, uh, priming the brain with your belief and your intention that you, ha- you will confirm what, you, what your hypothesis is. Because your brain doesn't even notice things that don't confirm that perspective, unless you're practicing it. If you look for what's good inside and out, or how life is amazing or how there's goodness around you and people really want to uh, express their love and feel loved, then that's what you start to notice. So you will see what you look for. The neuroscience corollary to uh, inclining the mind, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of mind, is the neuroscience axiom, neurons that fire together, wire together. That's just how it works. You're practicing that. So what we're doing here is practicing cultivating wholesome states, diminishing unwholesome states through our practice, but the little extra... Piece that I want to encourage you here is to not miss the wholesome states. They arise all by themselves as you practice this practice, but don't miss them. It's one thing to know, hmm, feeling pretty good now. It's a whole other one to explore what does it feel like to feel good? Oh, here's peace. What does the feeling of peace feel like? What's the landscape of joy? Ah, what is, what does it feel like to love or to feel compassion? Not that you've got to dissect or do anything special, but just not to miss it and let yourself rest in it. That's how you maintain and increase the wholesome state, not by trying to hold on to it, but by not missing it and really letting it register, letting that gladness of the wholesome inspire you and delight and open the heart, as the Buddha says now there's a few um, many ways to do this, um, and i'll just mention a few the what i The, the course that I teach um, goes through ten different wholesome states that you're very familiar with maybe i'll do a couple here tonight so you just get a sense of but that you can consciously cultivate not only in practice here, but in daily life, if you don't miss it, if you really attend to it, you start to change the default setting in the heart. The first, actually it starts with the understanding that you are wired up for well-being and joy. We are all born into this world with the capacity for well-being and for joy you see a baby that's fed and diapered and given a bit of love what does she do or he do wow isn't life wonderful right that's why we like being around babies because it reminds us that's their natural way when they're not under stress and their basic conditions are taken care of in the same way we have this capacity we haven't lost it unless you've been very very damaged but uh, and have never learned how to love and I I don't believe that anybody in this room you wouldn't be here if that was so Um, it's a very very rare uh, part of the population that doesn't know how to have affection even for their dog, or their, or their friend, or their has no ability to have social uh, connection uh, or relating to another being. But most of us, we still have this capacity, even if it's, if it's not activated as much. And in fact, if you put an adult in an FMRI machine and wire them up the, to their brain, put <laughs> electrodes on the brain, if that adult is, um, does not have stress in the body or um, stress in the mind, those are pretty big right there, but if, there's, if they're stress-free, the natural um, expression of a, of a bi- body and mind that is free of stress is conscious, calm, creative, caring, and content. That's what lights up in the brain. That's who we really are. And you can maybe start to see, even as we practice here, and you yeah, you go through the ups and downs and the storms and, and all, but little by little you might be noticing from time to time moments of well-being as the 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 mind and the heart start to get a little bit more space, those naturally start to emerge. Well it's important to see that this is who we are, not only who we are, but what we long for. We long for happiness. Anybody here that doesn't want to be happy? And if your hand you're fighting your hand and saying yeah, I like being grumpy. You know, I can relate. That's just your way of being happy, though. <laughs> whatever turns you on, you know, or whatever you've been practicing, if you look at your day and notice why you do whatever you do, you will likely find that every action comes from a place of thinking this will make me feel better even if it's beating yourself up as misguided as it is because it's just familiar because a lot of times we just you know well that's home and i just like being at home and familiar you know people say my god I i had this very strange feeling and i don't know what to do with it and gosh it was happiness (laughs) <laughs> and, and i don 't know what to do it joy i don't i can 't handle that you know sometimes it can be scary for people, but everything in us yearns for that well being and so this is just really activating that place inside of you that is really rooting for your well being as misguided as it might be at times it 's rooting for your well being and then it's a matter of discovering where true well-being lies and going for it and that is the the first of the wholesome states the intention the intention for true well-being and happiness and that's the the second aspect of the the eightfold path the first one wise understanding where you see where happiness lies. And then the second one, wise thought or wise intention where you say, I'm going for it. You probably can remember that feeling when you maybe got in contact with the teachings and thought, maybe it's possible for me, I'm going for it. That wise intention is something that we can forget about from time to time. And if we can put it in the center of our life and not only admit to ourselves but celebrate the fact, I really want true well being and happiness. You say it in the Metta meditation may I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be safe from harm. May I live with ease. That's what we're wishing for ourselves and for everybody else. This is just activating that and starting with the, the clear intention and decision. And the more you can get in touch with it, the more it becomes the, the central um, context within which you practice. In the, the teachings, there's this notion called the clear comprehension of purpose, where you really get in touch with what's inspired you or what inspires you to practice. And the more you can stay connected to that, the more you see this whole process of unfolding and development and going through the ups and the downs and the storms and whatever in this context of, I really want to go for true happiness. I don't have a choice. This is... This is difficult, it's hard, but there's something that calls me to do it. And what I like to reflect on is no matter how difficult things are inside, there's something in you that's carried you all the way through your life that's still going for it, even stronger than all your doubts and judgments and confusions. To really see that and miss, not miss it, Because once you make that decision, anything is is possible. Intention is the basis of all karma. I'll share with you uh, just one one, uh, story that uh, I I love from positive psychology. I'm sure you're familiar with positive psychology. The whole movement in the last 20 years or so started uh, by this guy Martin Seligman when he was the became the uh, head of the uh, American Psychological Association. And he wrote this book, Authentic Happiness, instead of seeing pathology to see uh, the possibility of uh, well-being, put that at the center. And he writes in his book how this movement started. The moment took place in my garden while I was weeding with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki, I have to confess that even though I write books about children, I'm really not all that good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm actually trying to get the weeding done. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air, singing and dancing around. (laughs) I yelled at her. She walked away, came back, and said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. Yes, Nikki, I said, Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday from the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. This was for me an epiphany, nothing less. Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I had spent 50 years mostly enduring wet weather in my soul and the last 10 being a nimbus cloud in a household full of sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to my grumpiness, but in spite of it, in that moment I resolved to change." That was the beginning of the positive psychology movement. Just that decision. She's right. I'm going to change. And look at the rippling effect it had. And we all can have that same rippling effect. Maybe not to the extent, you know, maybe if you're the head of the American Psychological Association, it's a a bigger ripple, (laughs) but we all have that capacity to affect everybody around us when we make that decision to go for true well-being. Because then what shines through is your love, is your goodness, is your clarity, is your wisdom, is your peace. And it's contagious. It affects everybody around you. So that is the first one. And I really encourage you to stay connected to your intention, your wholesome intention for practicing as you do this, maybe wake up every day and remember why you're doing it. Maybe take a moment right now and just remember what inspires you, moves you to practice. There's no particular right answer. It's just whatever touches your heart in a wholesome way. And let yourself feel it. What a blessing. What a grace that you can hear that call and feel it. Just relax into it. Okay, you can open your eyes. So the next wholesome state, which is really the key to the whole process, what you're doing here is the state or the mind state, the quality of mind of mindfulness. That mindfulness itself has a very unique property in all of the factors of mind, the 52 mental factors. That's the, that's the deck that we're dealt, the hand we're dealt some wholesome factors, some unwholesome factors, some neither wholesome or unwholesome. Of all of those factors, there's one factor, mindfulness, that has a unique property in that it weakens all the unwholesome states and it strengthens all the wholesome states. I think I talked about this a bit last time. Every moment that you're mindful, you are weakening all those states of confusion and strengthening all the states of expansion and love. And when you are feeling a state of well-being, when you put your attention on that wholesome state, with mindfulness, you amplify the state. The the reason... Uh, that I, one reason that I, I got so um, uh, moved to um, to explore and uh, get into this uh, program of of joy was uh, I was sharing this with somebody. there they it was Robert. Um, that um, I had uh, at one point um, a very serious eye situation where um I only see out of one eye. That's been that way for since I was a kid, which don't feel pity on me. I'm I've been doing fine my whole life. However, at one point my good eye got into some trouble. And I had three operations. And for a year, the sec after the second operation, I didn't uh it, it was my eyesight was not very good, and it was going down. And then I had the third operation, and it was the charm. And my eyesight has been very good in that um, in that eye since. That was about 14 years ago. But I was feeling so grateful after that for a while. I was just, you know, I didn't realize the difference, or where I was kind of accepting and resigning, and it was okay, but then when I could see, oh my God, I can see, and I was feeling so grateful that I became um, an explorer of gratitude. And it wasn't just, oh, I'm so grateful, get on with my life, it's, wow, what is gratitude? And I just kept on focusing on gratitude. And the more I would focus on it, the more I'd feel it. And I was seeing for myself, oh, that's what is talked about in the teachings, that when you pay attention to the wholesome state, you keep on amplifying it, not with an agenda. And that's how concentration works. When you're feeling joy to really explore, oh, what does joy feel like? Let yourself feel it fully. So with each of these wholesome wholesome states, you are noticing the the quality of it and letting yourself feel it. Just as an example, just so you see what what I mean, Um, close your eyes for a moment and bring to mind some blessing in your life. Someone or something that you're grateful for we're grateful to. And have a picture, have an image of either that person or that situation, that blessing. And as you connect with it, just give a very simple, silent, Thank you from the heart. Thank you and let yourself feel it. And as you feel it, just let your awareness relax into that feeling of well-being. Don't have to make any more of it than, than is here. Just don't miss it. Take a breath. Bring another blessing into your consciousness. Again, someone, something, some situation, circumstance. Have an image. A very simple, silent thank you from your heart. Thank you. And then let yourself relax into it. Just feel that terrain of gratitude, a grateful heart. Nothing that you need to change or squeeze out or make happen. Just don't miss it. Okay, take a breath, give you one more. One more blessing. There's so many. We do that blessing sutta every night. Each one, so many. Think of one, some person or some situation in your life. Have an image, Simple thank you, just from the heart. Thank you and let yourself mean it and feel it. Thank you. And just rest in it. Uh, This is the grateful heart. It's like this. Okay, you can open your eyes. So that's the the basic idea, basic principle. I think that um, I'm gonna, this will be a two-part talk because uh, obviously I didn't get close to doing all the wholesome states. But just for now, um, keep in mind that this is not just about enduring suffering. (laughs) And in fact, as I'll talk about next time, suffering itself can be a doorway to deep well-being and happiness, as one of the teachings in the Buddha talks about. Suffering is just as important A practice in opening to joy as feeling sweet rapture or bliss. But when there are moments of well-being, don't miss them. In fact, without trying to grasp, without trying to make anything happen, just see what it's like, have a little experiment, be on the lookout for moments of well-being and if you think oh I don't have many moments of well-being you can include moments that you're not miserable (laughs) not miserable is good enough oh this is a moment I'm not miserable oh see what's there you might be quite surprised to find oh this is okay this is a moment that's okay what do you know And keep in mind that this is not just to squeeze a little extra juice out of it. You are very profoundly, as the Buddha talked about, creating the ground, the foundation, the conditions for the deepest happiness to arise, which we will get into um, next time. And get the, into this talk. But I'll close with a, a favorite passage of mine um, from Shanti Deva, which talks about uh, just how sweet this path is. As a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. Let's just sit for a moment. As a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. attention. Enjoy your walking period and we'll come back for a a chanting and we'll chant those blessings together and maybe I'll share a little extra poem for you.